Welcome to the Inspiring Social Entrepreneurs Podcast. My name is Fergal Byrne. Every week, I talk to inspiring social entrepreneurs and changemakers dedicated to building a better world. Here, they tell their stories, the highs and the lows, and share what they have learned to help other social entrepreneurs and changemakers on their journeys. A couple of years ago, new questions were raised by, by big funders. Uh, they kept asking us, uh, what can we do about this topic of innovation? How do organizations that are established build the capacity to innovate on a more continuous basis. And that kind of about five years ago set us on a new trajectory of studying innovation processes in social enterprises. Uh, Social enterprises that we've always assumed were very innovative by who they were, but when we started looking, uh, we were surprised about what we find. I'm very pleased today to introduce Christian Silos. Christian is a scholar of social innovation. He's the Leo Tindemans Chair for Business Model Innovation at KU Levin, a visiting scholar at the Stanford University Center on Philanthropy and Civil Society, and an academic visitor at the Said Business School, University of Oxford. Christian, together with Joanna Mayer, are co-authors of the recently published Innovation and Scaling for Impact, How Effective Social Enterprises Do It. Well, thank you very much, Christian, for taking the time today to join me here for Inspiring Social Entrepreneurs. It's uh, very exciting to have an opportunity to speak to you about the work that you do and your upcoming book. My pleasure to be on the program. Thanks for having me. Excellent. Well, um, can you tell us all a little bit about what you do? I know you wear various different hats um, uh, from looking at uh, the work you're doing around the whole area of social entrepreneurship and social innovation. Yeah, I've, together with my, with my research colleagues, um, Johanna Meyer in particular, and uh, my research team at Stanford uh, and, uh, and in Oxford and, in, and in, at the University of Leuven, we have been looking at the trajectories of uh, social enterprises for the last 15 years particularly social enterprises operating in developing countries, India, Bangladesh, uh, Latin America. And um, a couple of years ago, uh, new questions were raised by by big funders. Uh, They kept asking us, uh, what can we do about this topic of innovation? How do organizations that are established build the capacity to innovate on a more continuous basis? And that kind of about five years ago set us on a new trajectory of studying innovation processes in social enterprises. Uh, Social enterprises that we've always assumed were very innovative by who they were, but when we started looking, uh, we were surprised about what we find. Uh, um, They aren't that innovative. Um, 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 Innovation plays a a minor role, but very important roles in the trajectories. And uh, so at the moment, this is where we are, trying to understand how organizations use innovation processes productively or unproductively as it sometimes occurs. Right, that's interesting. I'd be interested in your thoughts on what you mean by innovation because I suppose in a sense having uh, an organization, well having a uh, a for-profit business uh, providing services that maybe others might expect or in the past were provided by non-profits is in a sense an innovation. But I suppose once that innovation has, uh, you know, once there are more organizations operating in that way, um, the question is, how, how much uh, further innovation there is. And I'm wondering to what extent do you look at questions like business models and you know organizations that might be hybrid, find different sources of funding and so forth, might be a slightly different uh, sense of innovation. So I, I'm just wondering, if you talk a little bit about what innovation means. Yeah, happy to do that. 
I think one of my advantages is, uh, 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 and that is also true for several members in my research team, that I come from a business school background. I've, I've been working in a strategic management department uh, for many, many years. So I have been studying business models and business model innovation and uh, strategic innovation and for-profit companies. So it's in fact uh, fascinating to think about the similarities and important differences between the for-profit and not-for-profit sector. But in general, I think there's a lot of confusion about the term social innovation. Innovation per se is an ambiguous term, right? If you ask 10 people what they think innovation is, you get 10 different answers, even in a single organization. And social is also an ambiguous term, right? So you put those two terms together, you have social innovation, you get maximum confusion. And we have the same with terms such as you know, business model innovation. What is a business model? Have you ever seen a business model? Uh, or social entrepreneurship or venture philanthropy. So I think there's a lot of discourse in the scene and a lot of confusion, which isn't problematic um, per se, because uh, uh, it, it, raises, uh, uh, it raises interest and it raises awareness for particularly important phenomena. It's not so good. I mean, the level of, of confusion is not so good if you need to base uh, decisions uh, on your level of understanding of these terms. So if you're a funder, or a policymaker, or uh, and a manager in, a, in an operating organization, and you need to make uh, decisions on your understanding of what you think social innovation is, then you better have some, you know, some clarity within your organization. So one of the first things that I do with organizations, I work with them um, to provide clarity about how can they use the term social innovation or innovation productively by having a, 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 a clear uh, shared mental model within your organization of what is innovation? Uh, what are the characteristics of innovation? What can innovation do? What can innovation not do? Uh, what is the potential of innovation? What are the associated risks? What might be better alternatives than to innovate? So I think you know, providing this clarity rather than defining what social innovation is, defining it for you as an organization or a decision maker, how you want to use the term is critically important because per se, Social innovation is meaningless. It's a, it's a broad discourse. You know, everyone understands something different, and uh, and and that is not useful from a practical perspective. Right, right. So, how should companies address this question? So, as I said, it, you know, it, it means anything you like it to mean. Um, uh, my so, question, and that is a little bit also what we're trying to do in the in the, in the forthcoming book, um, Innovation Scaling for Impact: How Effective Social Enterprises Do It. We try to provide uh, decision makers um, with an innovation perspective that enables them to productively integrate innovation in their long-term impact strategy, or actually what we call uh, an impact creation logic. We try to uh, avoid uh, loaded terms like strategy because it's so loaded. So we, in the book, we talk about an impact creation logic. And, um, and, and therefore, what we propose is um, a productive use of the term social innovation requires a process perspective on innovation. So you look at uh, innovation as a particular process within your organization, uh, a process by which um, you, you search for ideas for a reason, you develop those ideas, uh, you formulate them, and then you scale the, the, the outputs or outcomes of the whole process. And uh, what we recommend is um, you keep an eye on six types of uncertainties. So innovation processes are characterized by at least six important types of uncertainties. Um, 
and and therefore innovation is an act of learning you remove uncertainties in fact you replace uncertainties with knowledge knowledge is required uh, for creating impact because only if you understand problems sufficiently the types of problems that you're trying to solve if you accumulate knowledge about what solutions might be effective about these problems and if you have clarity about who you are and where your commitment is because commitment is required otherwise you're not going to do the learning if you bring these, these dimensions together, uh, you're replacing uncertainties with, with knowledge. So innovation, in our perspective, is a learning process. Right. If you, if you don't know how to learn as an organization, don't innovate. That's one of the... Yes, yes. But, but that's a very interesting question, because how important is it? Uh, and, you know, I speak to a lot of social entrepreneurs, and uh, they don't always talk about innovation. How, how, how often is that a goal for them and, and does it really matter? I mean, to what extent, if, if, if impact is what you're really after, just, you know, making the world better, you know, which motivates a lot of people, um, why does it matter whether or not it's from replicating an idea that exists somewhere else, executing better, or whether they're genuinely innovating? That's right. I mean, in the end, we care about impact, whether it comes from innovation or some other process, right? That, uh, that may be a secondary question. But so, so one, of the, one of the implications of looking at innovation as a learning process is that innovation does not create impact, per se. Innovation is an investment. So we look at, at, at innovation as an investment into learning. And then the question is, you know, what, what, is, what is the impact return? On your investment in innovation, how do you create? How do you translate innovation into impact? Uh, because you haven't, you know, after an innovation process, you haven't created any impact. Yes, you just created the potential. You may have a new product, a new service, a new intervention. So, the, another core message in, in the book is that you got you better have a, a, a plan for your for the scaling part because scaling is what creates impact from innovation. Scaling means that. You take the outcome of the innovation process, the new product, the new business model, the new service or whatever it is, and then you fine tune it, you make it better, you make it more robust, you make it more productive, you make it more efficient. That requires focus, dedication, commitment, learning, routinization, formalization, all of those, you know, sometimes really hard, difficult and boring things that are not very glamorous, but this is the work that translates innovation and impact. So if you don't know how to scale, don't innovate because you will not be able to create value or, or impact from your investment in, in, into innovation. Right. So that's the second perspective that I think is is crucial and for us was also a breakthrough um, uh, and, and explains why if we look at the most impactful social enterprises that we know, uh, they do very little innovation overall, right? Uh, compared to how they allocate their resources, very little is going to innovation. Yes. They do very hard, committed work they have deep routines that comes from learning and repetition and long-term knowledge accumulation. In, in another word, they scale. Uh, they deliver on existing knowledge and they deepen the knowledge and create a lot of impact by doing that. Right. That's fascinating. So I, I guess this is a question I should have asked at the beginning. Why look at innovation if social entrepreneurs don't necessarily think about that? Um, why, why look at that? Because, in, you know, because scaling is so hard. Um, but, most organizations get distracted by this kind of uh, ideology that innovation is good and more innovation is better and funders reinforce that myth and that ideology and right the, yes this is an important it, yes this is an important question so so w let's say I take a group of social entrepreneurs 
um, well, just in my limited experience, I see people who want to solve particular problems and, and they're kind of a bit agnostic about how they do that. Um, I know, you know, we look at it at an industry or a sector or, you know, conference level, people, you know, use social innovation as a shorthand. But very often they are, you know, very concerned about you know, solving the problem and they're not really don't really care in a way how they do that. Um, to what extent do you think that the funders care about this, talk about this, and what impact does that have on how social entrepreneurs go about uh, formulating their approach and, 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 and the actual you know, strategies and, and work they do to, to solve social problems? Yeah, I mean, you're opening a black box of, of issues here. Um, one, one of the fascinating interfaces that we're looking right now in our research is the, is the relationship between, between funders and, uh, and uh, social enterprises or innovators or, um, or whatever you want to call them, social sector organizations. It seems that um, uh, unless you have the term innovation in your grant proposal, you're very unlikely to get any, any funding. It's really, it's really interesting. Funders want to, um, uh, want you to um, uh, uh, innovate and uh, uh, report positive impact in six months' time or twelve months' time after the innovation. Right, that failure is not really something that is part of that. Uh, yes. Of that so I think yes. there is a there is a, again this confusion about what innovation is and how it works. Right. And right. funders, to some extent, are guilty of, of fueling this ideology that innovation is good and right. more innovation yes. is better. Is is this um, grant funding, or is this across the board in terms of you know uh, increasingly impact investors and equity investors, business angels? Is this something you see common? It's a much broader phenomenon. I also see this in, in the venture philanthropy space, and 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 I think the other pathology um, uh, in this space is what I call solutionitis. Uh, there's all this this inspiring, wonderful young entrepreneurs that I see both in Silicon Valley, but also in Oxford, this call center and, and, and elsewhere. There are young people that come with great ideas about apps and technology. Um, they are very solution-centric. You know, they, they love developing solutions, particularly technical solutions. I mean, problems are, are sometimes I feel that for them, problems are these annoying things that stand in the way of their wonderful solutions and <laughs> the impact. Um, but but what we found in our studies is that the most impactful organizations, they spend a lot of time with problems. They don't uh, develop ideas about solutions for a long time because problem frame uncertainty is one of the major uncertainties that we found as a characteristic of innovation processes. And if you come from a solutions angle, your solution is probably the wrong one for the given problem that you're trying to, to solve. And, and even if, if it solves the problem, it may have uh, severe unintended consequences after you bring it out. Yes, that's, so, fasc that's fascinating. What is it? You talk about problem uh, frame uncertainty. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. Um, you know, as I told you, we, we, we advise uh, innovators or organizations that seriously want to make innovation productive to keep an eye on, on six types of uncertainties. You know, one is problem frame uncertainty. You think that, you think that um, poverty is an economic problem, so you bring in you know, microloans or you, you build a factory in Nigeria, a shoe factory that never produces anything, or you bring, on, bring in other uh, economic factors to solve the economic problem, but then it turns out it's not an economic problem. A, a recent example is uh, the Indian Prime Minister Modi's uh, um, um, uh, Clean India campaign, where he wants to build millions of toilets yes. uh, to prevent the, the devastating consequences of open defecation in, in India. Right? He thinks it's an economic problem, so let's just 
provide uh, free toilets to the people and, and that solves the problem but it's not it's it's a political problem it's a normative problem it has to do with 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 culture cultural issues with the caste problem in villages um, so 50% of those who receive a free toilet in India are not using that toilet um, because it's not an economic problem. And therefore, we are, I think we're wasting a lot of resources on misunderstandings of problems and therefore bringing out the wrong solutions. And that is not just wasting resources. They also have unintended consequences because they may create uh, cynicism and hopelessness and, and other devastating consequences. Right, right. That's, that is really interesting. Uh, it ties in with some previous conversations I've had I talked to Mark Van Treska at Skoll as well about some of these uh, you know there's the well, not the mythology so much of the individual social entrepreneur out there on his you know white horse solving the problem and yet these problems are very complex uh, and they need uh, you know multiple perspectives and uh, you know different kinds of groups working together to to solve them um, and maybe I'll talk about that in a moment but I'm interested also in in this question of scaling and uh, you talk a little bit about that. I spoke to somebody recently who's looking for funding, a very successful uh, conservation business, um, uh, or social business, and he was uh, a bit down at mouth about how uh, these very uh, complex relationships that they've built up over time in, you know, idiosyncratic, uh, unusual circumstances, you know, that uh, aren't the same from one country to another, that the funders that they talk to are talking about scaling as if it's, it's almost just like building another unit and sticking it on. Um, and uh, it's, it's, it's disconcerting and, and a problem. And, and I think interfering with their ability to raise funds it seems to betray a lack of understanding of how the organization works and the years and years and years it took to build these different kinds of relationships. Right. So I, I'm just wondering if you talk a little bit about, you know, uh, that question and then more generally about the question of the, the importance of scaling and what you've learned about um, you know, organizations that do it well. And I, I think your perspective on learning is, is, is very interesting too. Yeah, it, it, you know, it's fascinating how innovation and scaling link together. Um, again, scaling is this, is this big topic. Uh, you know, we could talk hours about scaling. It's so important for me. Scaling is the major bottleneck towards impact. We, we don't have enough people who are willing and able to build productive organizations. In, in my perspective, the productive organization that is able to deal with a problem at a, at the required level of effectiveness and scale uh, is is the principle of, of doing development work. Uh, so I, I I'm an organizational scholar. I look at organizations and uh, and uh, the ability to scale and therefore build productive organizations seems to be a real bottleneck in the development sector. And counterintuitively, uh, my advice to young social entrepreneurs is uh, don't try to be fancy, don't innovate, do something really, really simple, pick a simple problem, um, um, come up with a simple solution and learn how to scale first before you go into innovation. Try to build an effective solution, try to build a little bit of an organization around that, learn how to build a, a productive organization. This has two important consequences for innovation. First of all, as you learn more about the problems that you're solving and about your context, um, you create better ideas. So your, your innovation, in fact, is better uh, if you first invest in, in scaling uh, because you, you tend to have better ideas. You also already have an organizational shell that allows you to, if your innovation then is successful, 
to create impact, to, to translate the innovation into uh, uh, the delivery of the impact. So my advice is always try to find an easy way and a pragmatic way to build scaling competences first, because if you do that, your innovation will be much more productive afterwards. So, uh, you know, hold off with innovation until you are able to, or un until you have learned to build and to run a productive organization or some form of a productive solution first. That's very interesting. Um, any other thoughts on, on, on scaling? Um, you, you know, you rightly point out that this is, um, and, and some of it is, well, it's an issue in all organizations, I think, and, you know, for-profit organizations, and you often find the founder can bring a company to a certain level, and uh, then uh, somebody else is brought in with maybe, you know, comes from a larger company context and different skills and so forth, um, and they do, you know, say that there are bottlenecks there as well, aren't there, in terms of people who can build, you know, billion-dollar, you know, companies genuinely and so forth. But I'm just wondering any other thoughts on, on scaling in, 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 uh, in, in the in impact. I mean, I spoke to uh, Huggy Rao at Stanford about, yes. about scaling more generally, but I'm just wondering, looking through the lens of impact, you know, what, what other insights uh, that you have? And also, uh, maybe compared to, you know, uh, for-profit, you know, some of the, the maybe the, the ideas that, that are around about scaling in a for-profit organization, how that might be subtly different or, or, or more different in, in a uh, impact environment. What I find useful, and this is again something that we provide in the book, we've looked at, at our case studies and we find or we describe uh, four archetypes of how innovators can link innovation and scaling productively together. Um, we call them innovation archetypes. And um, I'm not going to go into all four archetypes, but one of them uh, might be interesting because it's counterintuitive. There, you know, I said previously that, you know, most importantly, people should really try to, to learn how to scale first and then think about innovation. But then there are some people who are just serial entrepreneurs. They want to innovate. They, they, are, they drive on novelty. And, uh, and, and, um, and, and some of them really innovate productively, but they don't want to build if, you know, large, effective organizations or manage an organization. So there is one archetype which we call uh, innovation for the future. It's an archetype that, for example, a social enterprise called Waste Concern in Bangladesh operates from. The, the two founders of the organization are, are serial entrepreneurs. Um, they just invent new things all the time, but they don't want to build and run a big organization. They want to go back to the, you know, to the, to the experimental situation and, and innovate new solutions to stop on um, problems. And, but what they do is they innovate in such a way that other organizations can easily adopt the outcomes of their innovations and therefore adopt them for their uh, purposes and then scale them. So they innovate by design in such a way that other organizations can create impact from their innovations. That's a very different approach towards innovation because they already have the scaling in mind as they innovate. Right? They basically follow you know, Rogers' diffusion of innovation principles and uh, one of the examples of how they do it is that they use a patent, which is very unique in, in the not-for-profit center. They use a patent for their innovations. And when organizations want to use their, their innovations, their service models, they need to come to Bangladesh, where they build a training center. Uh, and they need to study their innovations in great depth uh, for several weeks. And only then will they get a license to operate uh, and, and adopt their innovations. Uh, and this is a way of how the organization Waste Concern makes sure that organizations scale 
their innovations in a productive way. So it's a, it's a very explicit focus on how to create impact from innovation when you don't want to do the scaling work. So I find, find that fascinating. And, and there are other archetypes that we found uh, already this process. Right, that's that is very interesting. It's very interesting. Can you talk a little bit about one of the buzzwords? Uh, you very rarely hear the word innovation these days without disruptive <laughs> in it. Uh, what does it mean for uh, social impact? Are there lessons there? Are there dangers? I'm not sure. I'm very concerned. Uh, I recently did a radio show. There is a radio show in, in Silicon Valley called uh, Philosophy Talk Radio, and, and I suggest the title, Why Innovation Will Kill Us. <laughs> I'm concerned about disruption. Um, th there's this sense of, of urgency, of, of an unwillingness to deal with, with the past and the present, and then just disrupt everything, including all the problems, and, 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 in, and in a way make the way free for our wonderful solutions. Again, for me, this is the solution I this pathology. Uh, I think we should disrupt very little. We should think twice about disrupting anything because we don't know what the, what the unintended consequences of disruption are. We don't have endless resources uh, anymore on this planet by which we can endlessly disrupt everything and rebuild from scratch. We need to learn to be a, maybe, and maybe I'm sounding a little bit boring and conservative now, but I think we need to learn to create fewer problems and then we need to disrupt less. Um, so, so my, and you know, I'm, it's funny you now listening to myself talking, but um, in a way I really believe we need to learn how to deal with problems in a productive manner, and then maybe we need less innovation and certainly less disruption. Because unless we understand how to limit the supply of problems, we just have like hamsters in a wheel. We need more and more innovation to deal with the endless supply and faster supply of problems all the time. Right. And disruption yes. for me is also this, is this pathology. Let's not waste time with existing problems. Let's disrupt everything and move on. But I think this might be really fatal in the long run. Right, that's fascinating. To what extent um, is, is, are some of the problems we see from this kind of uh, binary thinking or people coming at it from a very specialist perspective? It seems to me talking to people in various different sectors, looking at problems, that what's missing often is a cross-sector or a partnership bringing together different perspectives. I think of like an ecology. Um, to what extent are some of the problems that we see due to the fact that if you just take this particular lens, you, you're not going to see the implication. If you just look at something as an economic problem, you're not going to see you know, the crucial role of, of culture and social elements and so forth. And to what extent um, is there a thinking and a way of looking at problems that, you know, and solutions that embraces uh, diversity at that level? Yeah, on the problem side, it's, it's hard to tell. I mean, obviously, we are creating problems because we, we, we think and act from isolated silos. So we, we don't see the, the connections and the spillover effects of our, of our actions and decisions uh, before sometimes it's too late. But, but I'm not, a, I'm not a, scholar of, a scholar of problem dynamics yet. <laughs> I'm increasingly being drawn into that. But on the solution side, of course, there's a lot of talking about we need more collaborations, particularly cross-sectoral collaborations. But then... Let's be realistic. Collaborations are hard, right? Yes. I mean, doing anything with anyone is really, really hard. If you can do it alone, you, you, you should better do it alone. That's, that's usually the advice that I, I give everyone. If you can't do it alone, do it alone. 
um, collaborate only if you must, or if there's a real, if there's a real, uh, right. That's a really, yeah, that's really interesting because it seems, and I often wonder, and I guess to some extent it was part of why I started this podcast that, you know, some of these problems that people are looking at have been solved elsewhere with ingenuity. And, you know, to what extent is, you know, our resources are limited. To what extent are people coming at problems, you know, and looking for solutions where there are already, uh, you know, ways of dealing with this that are already being used. They might not be sexy, they might not be high tech and so forth, but, you know, people have come in and solved problems, uh, particularly in the same sector, but also in other sectors. They've come into, you know, countries with you know, poor infrastructure, with certain social dynamics and things, and they found ways of, you know, working with local communities, embracing, you know, power structures that are there. And these can often be, you know, uh, you know, make or, or die kind of aspects of the success of these social ventures. You know, re replication is, of course, uh, has been the great, the great hope of social innovation. We saw that social innovations like microfinance could just be replicated and therefore eliminate poverty in, in, in no time. But replication is tricky unless you unless you innovate in such a way that other can, others can adopt and replicate what you are doing uh, in the way that I've outlined it with waste concern, right? But most, rep uh, most replications are so difficult because they, are, they have been done without the ability of others to replicate what you're doing um, uh, in mind. For example, the Aravind Eye Hospital, one of the most productive eye hospitals in the world, a lot of people have tried to replicate parts of that, but Aravind did not innovate in order to in order for other organizations to replicate what they're doing. Um, so because the innovation wasn't done in that way, it's very organizational, very unique to the organization. It's very, very difficult for others to understand how Aravind does it and, and in order to replicate what they are doing. So one of the solutions to that problem is um, we, if, we, if we care about replications, we need to understand how to innovate in such a way that others can adopt uh, our uh, you know our successful innovations uh, much more easy. Yes. But yes. Then the other real uh, important thing, and that's also something that we stress in the book, we try to separate between what we call technical problems and relational problems. You know, technical problems. I think replication has a, uh, has a long way to go. Um, technical problems are, for example, the cataract eye surgeries that the Aravind Eye Hospital provides. It's a technical problem. It can be fixed by a, by a surgery and a technical solution, and it works in a predictable manner. I think for these types of things, replication is important. But for the more relational problems that have to do with traditions, norms, uh, power structures, uh, political issues, uh, there I think we need to think twice. What what I see there is, is two types of solutions. Uh, either organizations like, uh, like for example, Grambikas in India, who turn around villages uh, around uh, power and politics issues and about normative issues related to their caste system. So they operate one village after the, other, after the other. They replicate their own process at the level of a, of a village, and they have done 1,500 villages, which is fascinating. But the other solution to these types of problems is, again, collaboration. If you care about problems that are defined by both technical and relational um, factors, so savings, um, cognitive issues such as uh, you know certain belief structures, traditions, and other normative issues, these types of complex problems, um, you one of the tricks that I see is social conglomerates, organizations like Brak in Bangladesh or Sekim in Egypt, who who don't collaborate with others, but they build their own collaboration partners. So instead of 
trying to collaborate with external, with other NGOs or the, or the, or the, or the or governments or the private sector, they build their own businesses, they build their own NGOs under the umbrella of their organizations, and they, they are widening their space of impact and the scope of what they do. But instead of the traditional collaborations with others, they build the types of organizations that they want to collaborate with themselves. And then it's much easier to collaborate with them because they are within their organizational structure. They share the same value system. And I think that is a very, very smart way to approach these complex, tough um, social uh, relational problems that uh, are probably the final frontier of uh, social innovation work. Right. That's fascinating. I spoke to Mark Fantresco at Skoll and he talked about this increasing focus on systems change. You know, organizations like the Future of Fish, um, you know, looking at it at a very uh, system level or at a you know, very high level. Do you see much hope in those kind of uh, projects? Uh, yes and no. Again, you know, systems change is again one of these ambiguous terms, right? First of all, what is a system or what is not a system? Right? Um, we as individuals are already systems. So it depends on can you make these types of concepts meaningful um, and productive for what you're trying to do. So the, 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 the systems focus um, has a lot of advantages because it forces you to think deeply. Um, it forces you to engage reality much more. Uh, it, it may prevent uh, what I call the solution ideas. You, you, may, you may resist jumping to easy solutions when you wear a systems lens. Uh, but it also has disadvantages, right? You know, systems perspective requires you to spend a lot of time with, with the type of system in order to understand it. Uh, you, you know, in, uh, understanding complex system can only be done, cannot be done by studying it. You need to intervene and act in that system to see how it responds, which means that if you're serious about systems change, you need to be able and prepared for lots of disappointments and a long learning curve. Can you, you know, are you able to motivate your people in your organization? Can you fund that? Can you sustain yourself until you understand the system sufficiently so that you can change it in a productive manner? Again, all of these things have pros and cons. No easy recipes, no easy solutions. Uh, but we gotta, we need to learn to identify and support those organizations who are willing to do the hard work. Not the innovation work and not the sexy technology and app-centric work, but the hard work, hands-on with the problems uh, uh, that we try to get rid of. If we can learn to understand and, and support them better, I think we can, we can make progress towards real impact. That's fascinating, Christian. That's been a really um, uh, very interesting uh, and ideas-filled uh, podcast interview. And I thank you so much for taking the time to speak to me today. And uh, I wish you the very best success with your continuing work. Thank you. All the best to you and enjoy the upcoming holiday season. Thank you for listening to the Inspiring Social Entrepreneur podcast. I hope you found this interview inspiring. Please make sure to visit www.inspiringsocialentrepreneurs.com and subscribe to make sure you don't miss any future podcasts.